Now, my beloved brothers and sisters, it is a tremendous honor to speak on this occasion. We are interviewed frequently by the media these days. As many of you know, I recently appeared on the Larry King Live television program. I consented to do so because I felt that while there were possible hazards in it, there also was a great opportunity to speak to the world on issues before us. In the course of the show, Mr. King asked me point blank, what is your role? You're the leader of a major religion. What's your role? I replied, my role is to declare doctrine. My role is to stand as an example before the people. My role is to be a voice of, in defense of the truth. My role is to stand as a conservator of those values which are important in our civilization and our society. My role is to lead. This reply was extemporaneous. I never expected that question. But in the spirit of that response, I have thought this morning that I would like to raise a half dozen or so questions we are invariably asked by those of the media and other churches. For this occasion, I must be necessarily brief. One of these issues is worthy of each one of these issues is worthy of a full discourse. <clears throat> I have chosen these questions at random, not putting them in any special order except for the first. I do not wish to argue with anyone. I respect the religion of every man and woman and honor them in their desire to live it. I simply wish to set forth, as simply as I know how, my response to what people are asking about us. Question one. What is the Mormon doctrine of deity, of God? Since the time of the first vision, people have raised this question, and they continue to raise it, and will do so for so long as they believe in the God of their tradition while we bear testimony of the God of modern revelation. The Prophet Joseph declared it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. This first article of faith epitomizes our doctrine. We do not accept the Athanasian Creed. We do not accept the Nicene Creed, nor any other creed based on tradition and the conclusions of men. We do accept, as the basis of our doctrine, the statement of the Prophet Joseph Smith, that when he prayed for wisdom in the woods, quote, the light rested upon me, and I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Two beings of substance were before them, for him. He saw them. They were in form like men, only much more glorious in their appearance. He spoke to them. They spoke to him. They were not amorphous spirits. Each was a distinct personality. They were beings of flesh and bone whose nature was reaffirmed in later revelations which came to the prophet. Our entire case as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rests on the validity of this glorious first vision. It was the parting of the curtain to open this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Nothing on which we base our doctrine, nothing we teach, nothing we live by, is of greater importance than this initial declaration. I submit that if Joseph Smith talked with God the Father, and his beloved Son, then all else of which he spoke is true. This is the hinge on which turns the gate 
that leads to the path of salvation and eternal life. Are we Christians? Of course we're Christians. We believe in Christ. We worship Christ. We take upon ourselves in solemn covenant His holy name. The Church to which we belong carries His name. He is our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, through through whom came the great atonement with salvation and eternal life. Question two. What is your Church's attitude toward homosexuality? In the first place, we believe that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. We believe that marriage may be eternal through exercise of the power of the everlasting priesthood in the house of the Lord. People inquire about our position on those who consider themselves so-called gays and lesbians. My response is that we love them as sons and daughters of God. They may have certain inclinations which are powerful and which may be difficult to control. Most people have inclinations of one kind or another at various times. If they do not act upon these inclinations, then they can go forward as do all other members of the Church. If they violate the law of chastity and the moral standards of the Church, then they are subject to the discipline of the Church, just as others are. We want to help these people, to strengthen them, to assist them with their problems, and to help them with their difficulties. But we cannot stand idle if they indulge in immoral activity, if they try to uphold and defend and live in a so-called same-sex marriage situation. To permit such would be to make light of the very serious and sacred foundation of God-sanctioned marriage and its very purpose, the rearing of families. Question three, what is your position on abortion? According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there were more than 1,200,000 abortions performed in 1995 in the United States alone. What has happened to our regard for human life? How can women and men deny the great and precious gift of life, which is divine in its origin and nature? How wonderful a thing is a child! How beautiful is a newborn babe! There is no greater miracle than the creation of human life. Abortion is an ugly thing, a debasing thing, a thing which inevitably brings remorse and sorrow and regret. While we denounce it, we make allowance in such circumstances as when pregnancy is the result of incest or rape, when the life or health of the mother is judged by competent medical authority to be in serious jeopardy, or when the fetus is known by competent medical authority to have serious, severe defects that will not allow the baby to survive beyond birth. But such instances are rare, and there is only a negligible probability of their occurring. In these circumstances, those who face the question are asked to consult with their local ecclesiastical dealers and to pray in great earnestness, receiving a confirmation through prayer before proceeding. There is a far better way. If there is no prospect of marriage to the man involved, leaving the mother alone, there remains the very welcome option of placing the child for adoption by parents who will love it and care for it. There are many such couples in good homes who long for a child and cannot have one. Question four. What is the Church's position on polygamy? We are faced these days with many newspaper articles on this subject. This has arisen out of a case of alleged child abuse on the part of some of those practicing plural marriage. I wish to state categorically that this Church has nothing whatever to do with those practicing polygamy.
They are not members of this Church. Most of them have never been members. They are in violation of the civil law. They know they are in violation of the law. They are subject to its penalties. The Church, of course, has no jurisdiction whatever in this matter. If any of our members are found to be practicing plural marriage, they are excommunicated, the most serious penalty the Church can impose. Not only are those so involved in direct violation of the civil law, they're in violation of the law of his Church. An article of our faith is binding upon us. It states, We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. One cannot obey the law and disobey the law at the same time. There is no such thing as a Mormon fundamentalist. It is a contradiction to use the two words together. More than a century ago, God clearly revealed unto his prophet Wilfred Woodruff that the practice of plural marriage should be discontinued, which means that it is now against the law of God. Even in countries where civil or religious law allows polygamy, the Church teaches that marriage must be monogamous and does not accept into its membership those practicing plural marriage. Question 5. To what do you attribute the growth of the Church? We are growing. We are growing in a wonderful way. Between natural growth and converts baptized, we are adding about 400,000 per year. On a basis of 10 million, that is about 4 percent, which is exceptionally good for a Church. People are looking for a solid anchor in a world of shifting values. They want something they can hold to as the world about them increasingly appears to be in disarray. They are welcomed as new converts and are made to feel at home. They feel the warmth of the fellowship of the saints. They are put to work. They are given responsibility. They are made to feel a part of the great onward movement of this, the work of God. And, of course, we have missionaries to assist them in their search for truth. They soon discover that much is expected of them as Latter-day Saints. They do not resent it. They measure up, and they like it. They expect their religion to be demanding, to require reformation in their lives. They meet the requirements. They bear testimony of the great good that has come to them. They are enthusiastic and faithful. Question 6. What about spouse and child abuse? We condemn most strongly abusive behavior in any form. We denounce the physical, sexual, verbal, or emotional abuse of one's spouse or children. Our proclamation on the family declares, Husband and wife have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. Parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. We are doing all we know how to do to stamp out this terrible evil when there is recognition of equality between the husband and the wife, when there is acknowledgment that each child born into the world is a child of God, then there will follow a greater sense of responsibility to nurture, to help, to love with an enduring love those for whom we are responsible. No man who abuses his wife or children is worthy to hold the priesthood of God. No man who abuses his wife or children is worthy to be a member in good standing in this Church. The abuse of one's spouse and children is a most serious offense before God, and any who indulge in it may expect to be disciplined by the Church. Question 7. How does the Church finance its operations? Brother Faust has spoken on that very ably this, this morning. 
Those on the outside world how, wonder how we are able to do so much. They speak and write of the Church as having great wealth and tremendous assets. We do have assets. We have houses of worship that dot the earth. We are building a large number of new ones every year. We carry on a great program of higher education, of seminaries and institutes. We have an unequaled family history facility. We foster a tremendous missionary organization that entails the maintenance of mission homes and other facilities in addition to the cost of maintaining the missionaries, which is borne by the missionaries themselves and their families. We carry on other programs, all of which require money. But all of these and more are money-consuming and not money-creating. It costs a great deal to operate this Church. Its worldwide operations are financed through the consecrated tithes of faithful members. What a wonderful and glorious principle is the law of tithing. It is so simple to understand and follow. It is the Lord's law of finance. I thank the Lord from the bottom of my heart for the faith of those who pay their honest tithes. Are they the poorer for it? We testify that somehow, under the divine providence of the Lord, He makes it up to us and does so generously. It is not a tax. It is a voluntary offering given in confidentiality. It is a principle that carries with it a remarkable promise. God has stated that He will open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. That is His promise. He has the capacity to fulfill that promise, and it is my testimony that He does so. Well, that's all I have time for now. There could be many other items. These are only a sample of questions that those of a curious world ask of us. We have to know this, you and I, who subscribe to the doctrines of this Church, that this is God's work, directed by the Lord Jesus Christ, that it operates according to their plan and their pattern, and that, that it carries with it their blessings. Why are we such a happy people? It is because of our faith. The quiet assurance that abides in our hearts that our Father in Heaven, overseeing all, will look after His sons and daughters who walk before Him with love and appreciation and obedience. We will ever be a happy people if we will so conduct our lives. Sin never was happiness. Transgression never was happiness. Falsehood in word or behavior never was happiness. Happiness lies in obedience to the teachings and commandments of God, our Eternal Father, and His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I've said before from this pulpit, my brothers and sisters, we love you. We love you for your faith and goodness. We love you for your willingness to do whatever you're asked to do. We love you for your obedience to the will of the Lord. Knowing this work to be true, we go forward, each of us. May we make a renewed effort to put on the whole armor of God and look to Him is my humble prayer in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Book of Mormon tells of the resurrected Savior. Ministering to the Nephites, he included in his teachings, however, some things about latter days. I shall gather in from their long dispersion my people, and shall establish again among them my Zion. The prophet Daniel foresaw and foretold the establishment of the kingdom of God in the latter days. Even in this dispensation, the Lord has declared, If this generation will not harden their hearts, 
I will establish my church among them. There are many references which confirm this is the time for his church to be established in preparation for his second coming. We are the ones with the special opportunity of helping build his kingdom once again. I offer prayers of gratitude that I have any part in this work, which has been spoken of for centuries by many prophets and the Lord himself. Establishing his church is a unique assignment. We must take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people in their own language without defiling the purity of the message. The Church must help develop leaders of integrity, leaders from whom honest people everywhere can receive inspired guidance. The Church has an equal obligation for all who have lived, who now live, and for those who will yet live on this earth. The Church must teach correct laws and ordinances in the Lord's way, which qualify the obedient believer for eternal life. Oh, there are many other requirements familiar to us that make the task of establishing such a Church seem overwhelming. But such is the assignment from the Lord. And how is such a church established? Well, on a much smaller scale, I know what it takes to build a beautiful temple, and it is more than detailed plans or quality materials. It requires skillful workers in every part of the process, each one doing his best work in a united effort. I also know that the leadership of an inspired prophet is vital in building lovely temples as it is in every other part of this great work. I dearly cherish the special opportunities that I have had to see inspiration in the Spirit of the Lord flow through President Hinckley. He is truly a prophet for this time. As in building temples, however, dedicated workers are a necessary part of establishing the Lord's kingdom on earth. The work moves well if each one has a driving conviction in his heart and mind that Jesus Christ is the head of this Church, that he truly lives and guides this work, and that all of us have an important part in bringing it to pass. We must be willing to learn gospel principles and practice them and pray about them with sincere hearts and with real intent and having faith in Christ. Then comes the assurance that the principles are true. And with true conversion comes an excitement about being part of this great work. It's an interesting thought that the Lord has declared this is the time to establish His Church and then to realize it happens as each of us develops a firm, unwavering testimony of the truthfulness of its precepts. Oh, the Church can build temples and send missionaries throughout the world and do marvelous humanitarian acts but it still comes to what exists in our own thoughts and feelings and actions as to how solidly it is established. Will the good news of the gospel be shared with our neighbors? Will new converts be warmly fellowshipped? Will the temples be filled with dedicated patrons doing work for their ancestry? Will families learn to live on a celestial level, all because we have a pure love for our Father in Heaven, His teachings, and His children? President Kimball declared the kingdom of God that we seek to establish can only be done through consistent and concerted daily effort by every single member of the Church. The wonderful part is that every person devoted to the establishment of the Latter-day Church of Jesus Christ receives innumerable and eternal blessings. It has been said the greatest waste in the world is the difference between what we are and what we may become. The gospel is at the heart of what we may become and how to get there. With that help, we are able to live in this world while separating ourselves from that which is debasing, and we can become better people while we are here. Most of us want to live pure lives and contribute, yet we still falter occasionally. Perhaps it helps to reflect on Solomon's observation that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It is my privilege to know many who have focused their thoughts on the wholesome and the pure things of life. They ponder on the scriptures, and they strive to magnify callings given to them. The gospel becomes a way of life, and over time they evidence peace and tranquility in themselves and bless greatly those around them. We may not appreciate the capacity of our minds to absorb and remember if we think it doesn't matter what books or movies or other activities are fed into it. The Lord wisely told us to seek first for the kingdom of God 
and then other desirable things will also come to us. Elder Sterling W. Sill noted that our mind, like the dyer's hand, is colored by what it holds. That is, if I hold in my hand purple dye, my hand becomes purple. Those who help establish the Church know what is bad, but they consistently choose the better part and fill their minds with pure thoughts. Establishing the kingdom of God on the earth depends on individual members of the Church using their God-given agency to think and to say and act in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ at all times. Those who feel they are too busy or have too many problems to be part of this work are likely the ones who would receive the greatest benefit from wholehearted participation, and the valuable service they could give would greatly bless others as well. Now is the time to establish the Lord's Church by securing a confirmation of the truthfulness of the gospel in our own hearts and doing what priesthood leaders ask of us. As we do so, we can come to know the personal blessings found in a great plan of happiness. We will come to know our Savior and what He has done for us and feel His great love. A sweet assurance of what is truth comes into our lives, and we will sense we are an important part of an eternal cause. We will truly enjoy the leadership of a wonderful prophet and other great leaders. Our lives can be filled with the peace of the Lord and the benefit of having His Church solidly established on this earth. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Several years ago, I interviewed a young woman for a temple recommend to receive her own endowments and to be married and sealed for time and all eternity. As I completed the interview and signed the recommend, tears were streaming down her cheeks. I said, Please share with me your feelings. Then she told me the following story. Since her youth, she had sought to find truth and direction in her life. She had yearned to find peace and happiness, but no matter where she looked, she could not find it. It had come to a point where she was very distraught, assuming there was really nothing in life that had true meaning or was fulfilling. In this frame of mind, one evening while visiting a dear friend, recounting her concerns and despair, she said, I looked behind the sofa where I was sitting to the bookshelf. My eyes fell upon a particular volume, and a compelling feeling came over me. I knew I needed to find out what was written on its pages. She took the book from the shelf and read the title, The Book of Mormon. She asked her friend where she had received it. Her friend indicated that two young missionaries stopped her on the street and gave her the book, but only after a commitment to read it. But due to the lack of time, she had just put it on the shelf. I started to read, she said. I could not put it down. A feeling came over her that she had never felt before. Her friend told her that she could take the book with her. She went home and continued to read through the night. The next morning she went into the streets looking for the two young missionaries. It didn't take long to find them. They agreed to teach her the gospel, and in a few weeks she was baptized a member of the Church. Through her tears, she explained that since that day she had found a joy and inner peace that she never dreamed possible. Living in a small town with few members and even fewer opportunities to marry in the Church, she didn't dare hope that she might one day marry in the temple. But she felt it was through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that she met a young man while vacationing in another country. He was a member of the Church and honored his priesthood. They had fallen in love, and he had asked her to marry him in the temple. The realization that she could now go to the house of the Lord and be sealed for time and all eternity brought joy to her soul and feelings of thankfulness and gratitude that were overwhelming and impossible to describe. I continue to ask myself, she said, why me? Why me? I am so blessed. Her humble, sweet spirit and testimony touched me deeply. As she left, we both shed tears of joy and appreciation. I have often thought of that experience, and each time I do, it brings a deep feeling of gratitude for our Savior and for what He has done for us. 
the price that he paid to make it possible for each one of us to find inner peace in a troubled world. President David O. McKay wrote, From the forty-day fast on the Mount of Temptation to the moment on the cross when he cried in triumph, it is finished. Christ's life was a divine example of subduing and overcoming. Full of significance are his words spoken in his farewell address to his disciples. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The peace that he spoke of is defined by one writer as, quote, True joy is an intense inner peace and happiness, unquote. It is the peace that Paul spoke of, the peace of God which patheth all understanding. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace of mind, heals the soul, and calms the troubled heart. It gives definition and meaning to the purpose of life, the spiritual reassurance that God lives and Jesus is the Christ. Joy and peace of mind that truth-seekers throughout the world desire to find can only be found by knowing and living the principles of the gospel. The Savior said, If ye keep my commandments, ye will abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Elder Franklin D. Richards extended an invitation to all who seek true joy in these words. Those who are seeking a plan of life that will bring them peace, relief from inner tension, happiness and growth and development, will find it in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. He followed by saying, We invite your sincere and prayerful consideration. There may be those who feel like they are lost and too far gone to receive the great blessings that the gospel can give. But Elder Spencer W. Kimball wrote, quote, The essence of the miracle of forgiveness is that it brings peace to the previously anxious, restless, frustrated, perhaps tormented soul. In a world of turmoil and contention, this is indeed a priceless gift, unquote. After the Savior taught his disciples of the peace he would leave with them, and the Comforter he would send from the Father, he charged them by saying, And ye also shall bear witness. He taught that herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Brothers and sisters, there are many on the earth who desire a witness of truth and earnestly seek the peace and joy promised by the Savior, but who are blinded by the subtle craftiness of men and who are only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. We live in a world where many hear of Christ but do not know Him. It is incumbent upon us as members of the Church to share our testimony with others. In humility, we bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If they will but open their hearts to Him, they will find the reassurance, the peace, and the joy that His gospel brings. They will find strength to meet the challenges of life in a difficult world, and by accepting His teachings and keeping His commandments, they will be heirs to His promised blessings. To this I bear my humble witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As modern winds of immorality swirl luridly around them, I too am concerned for any of our youth or young adults who may be confused about principles of personal purity, about obligations of total chastity before marriage, and complete fidelity after it. Against what is happening in the world they see and hear, and hoping to fortify parents as they teach their children a higher standard, I wish to speak today about moral cleanliness, because this subject is as sacred as any I know. I earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to guide me in remarks that are more candid than I would wish to make. Today I know how Jacob in the Book of Mormon felt when he said on the same topic, 
it grieveth me that I must use so much boldness of speech. In approaching this subject, I do not document a host of social ills for which the statistics are as grim as the examples are offensive. Nor will I present here a checklist of do's and don'ts about dating and about boy-girl relationships. What I wish to do is more personal. I wish to try to answer questions some of you may have been asking. Why should we be morally clean? Why is it such an important issue to God? Does the Church have to be so strict about it when others don't seem to be? How could anything society exploits and glamorizes so openly be very sacred or serious? May I begin with a lesson from civilization's long, instructive story Will and Ariel Durant have written, No man or woman, however brilliant or well-informed, can safely dismiss the wisdom of lessons learned in the laboratory of history. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires. But if he is unchecked by custom or morals or laws, he may ruin his life before he understands that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred constraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group." A more important scriptural observation is offered by the writer of Proverbs. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Whoso committeth adultery destroyeth his soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Why is this matter of sexual relationships so severe that fire is almost always the metaphor, with passion pictured vividly in flames? What is there in the potentially hurtful heat of this that leaves one's soul, or the whole world for that matter, destroyed if that flame is left unchecked and those passions unrestrained? What is there in all of this that prompts Alma to warn his son Corianton that sexual transgression is an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost? By assigning such seriousness to a physical appetite so universally bestowed, what is God trying to tell us? about its place in His plan for all men and women. I submit to you He is doing precisely that, that, commenting about the very plan of life itself. Clearly among His greatest concerns regarding mortality are how one gets into this world and how one gets out of it. He has set very strict limits in those matters. Fortunately, in the case of how life is terminated, Most seem to be quite responsible. But in the significance of giving life, we sometimes find near-criminal irresponsibility. May I offer three reasons why this is an issue of such magnitude and consequence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. First is the revealed, restored doctrine of the human soul. One of the plain and precious truths restored in this dispensation is that the spirit and the body are the soul of man, and that when the spirit and body are separated, men and women cannot receive a fullness of joy. That is the reason why obtaining a body is so fundamentally important in the first place, why sin of any kind is such a serious matter, namely because it is sin that ultimately brings both physical and spiritual death, and why the resurrection of the body is so central to the great triumph of Christ's atonement. The body is an essential part of the soul. This distinctive and very important Latter-day Saint doctrine underscores why sexual sin is so serious. 
We declare that one who uses the God-given body of another without divine sanction abuses the very soul of that individual, abuses the central purpose and processes of life, the very key to life, as President Boyd K. Packer once called it, in exploiting the body of another, which means exploiting his or her soul, one desecrates the Atonement of Christ, which saved that soul and which makes possible the gift of eternal life. And when one mocks the Son of Righteousness, one steps into a realm of heat hotter and holier than the noonday sun. You cannot do so and not be burned. Please never, never say, Who does it hurt? Why not a little freedom? I can transgress now and repent later. Please don't be so foolish and so cruel. You cannot with impunity crucify Christ afresh. Flee fornication, Paul cries, and flee anything like unto it, the Doctrine and Covenants adds. Why? Well, for one reason, because of the incalculable suffering in both body and spirit endured by the Savior of the world so that we could flee. We owe Him something for that. Indeed, we owe Him everything for that. You are not your own, Paul says. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In sexual transgression, the soul is at stake, the body and the spirit. Secondly, may I stress that human intimacy is reserved for a married couple because it is the ultimate symbol of total union, a totality and a union ordained and defined by God. From the Garden of Eden onward, marriage was intended to mean the complete merger of a man and a woman, their hearts, their hopes, their lives, love, family, future, everything. Adam said of Eve that she was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, and that they were to be one flesh in their life together. This is a union of such completeness that we use the word seal to convey its eternal promise. The prophet Joseph Smith once said we perhaps could render such a sacred bond as being welded one to another. But such a total union, such an unyielding commitment between a man and a woman can only come with the proximity and permanence afforded in a marriage covenant with solemn promises and the pledge of all they possess their very hearts and minds, all their days and all their dreams. Can you see the moral schizophrenia that comes from pretending you are one, pretending you've made solemn promises before God, sharing the physical symbols and the physical intimacy of your counterfeit union, but then fleeing, retreating, severing all such other aspects of what was meant to be a total obligation? In matters of human intimacy, you must wait. You must wait until you can give everything. And you cannot give everything until you are legally and lawfully married. To give illicitly that which is not yours to give, remember you are not your own, and to give only part of that which cannot be followed with the gift of your whole self is emotional Russian roulette. If you persist in pursuing physical satisfaction without the sanction of heaven, you run the terrible risk of such spiritual psychic damage that you may undermine both your longing for physical intimacy and your ability to give wholehearted devotion to a later, truer love, you may come to that truer moment of ordained love, of real union, only to discover, to your horror, that what you should have saved you have spent, and that only God's grace can recover the piecemeal dissipation 
of the virtue you so casually gave away. On your wedding day, the very best gift you can give your eternal companion is your very best self, clean and pure and worthy of such purity in return. Thirdly, may I say that physical intimacy is not only a symbolic union between a husband and a wife, the very uniting of their souls, but it is also symbolic of a shared relationship between them and their Father in heaven. He is immortal and perfect. We are mortal and imperfect. Nevertheless, we seek ways, even in mortality, whereby we can unite with Him spiritually. In so doing, we gain some access to both the grace and the majesty of His power. Those special moments include kneeling at a marriage altar in the house of the Lord, blessing a newborn baby, baptizing and confirming a new member of the Church, partaking of the emblems of the Lord's Supper, and so forth. These are moments when we quite literally unite our will with God's will, our spirit with His Spirit, where communion through the veil becomes very real. At such moments, we, are, we not only acknowledge His divinity, but we're quite literally taking something of that divinity to ourselves. One aspect of that divinity given to virtually all men and women is the use of His power to create a human body. That wonder of all wonders, a genetically and spiritually unique being, never before seen in the history of the world and never to be duplicated again in all the ages of eternity. A child. Your child. With eyes and ears and fingers and toes and a future of unspeakable grandeur, probably only a parent—you can tell I'm one—that has held a newborn infant in his or her arms understands the wonder of which I speak. Suffice it to say that of all the titles God has chosen for Himself, Father is the one He favors most. And creation is his watchword, especially human creation, creation in his image. You and I have been given something of that godliness, but under the most serious and sacred of restrictions. The only control placed on us is self-control. Self-control born of respect. For the divine sacramental power this gift represents, my beloved friends, especially my young friends, can you see why personal purity is such a serious matter? Can you understand why the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve Apostles would issue a proclamation declaring that, quote, the means by which mortal life is created is divinely appointed, and that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife. Close quote. Don't be deceived and don't be destroyed. Unless such powers are controlled and commandments kept, your future may be burned. Your world could go up in flames. Penalty may not come on the precise day of transgression, but it comes surely and certainly enough. And unless there is true repentance and obedience to a merciful God, then someday, somewhere, the morally cavalier and unclean will pray like the rich man who wished Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. I have declared here the solemn word of revelation that the spirit and the body constitute the soul of man, and that through the atonement of Christ the body shall rise from the grave 
to unite with the Spirit in an eternal existence. That body is therefore something to be kept pure and holy. Do not be afraid of soiling its hands in honest labor. Do not be afraid of scars that may come in defending the truth or fighting for the right. But beware scars that spiritually disfigure, that come to you in activities you should not have undertaken, that befall you in places where you should not have gone. Beware the wounds of any battle in which you have been fighting on the wrong side. If some few of you are carrying such wounds, and I know that you are, to you is extended the peace and renewal of repentance available through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In such serious matters, the path is not easily begun or painlessly traveled. But the Savior of the world will walk that essential journey with you, with everyone willing to undertake it. He will strengthen you when you waver. He will be your light when it seems most dark. He will take your hand and be your hope when hope seems all you have left. His compassion and mercy, with all their cleansing and healing power, are freely given to all who truly wish complete forgiveness and will take the steps that lead to it. I bear witness of the great plan of life, of the powers of godliness, of mercy and forgiveness and the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of which have profound meaning in matters of moral cleanliness. I testify that we are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit. I thank heaven for the legions of the young who are doing just that and helping others to do the same. I thank heaven for, for homes where that is taught, that lives of personal purity may be reverenced by all, I pray, in the name of purity himself, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. After that stirring number, I feel like I should march up here. <laughs> Brother Otley, you didn't know that I used to be the drum major of the ROTC band. Each year we have a family vacation at Bear Lake. It's an exciting week of getting acquainted with grandchildren. For the past few years I've listened to their opportunities and challenges. They have let me know of the increased pressures of being in the world but not of the world. Movies, television, internet, designer clothes, extreme fashions, Sabbath-breaking activities, etc escalate the magnitude of their temptations. Moreover, peer pressures force difficult decisions about whether to follow the crowd or to stand up for the principles taught by converted and committed parents and the Church. This year I decided to be a little more aggressive in my counseling to my grandchildren. I wanted to provide them with a framework to resist temptation and thrive in today's complex world. Our reunion at the lake extends for four days. So I decided to purchase a loose-leaf binder for each of them and include a topic for discussion for each day. Each insert included some scripture references and quotes that were intended to start fruitful discussions between generations. On the first day, there was not much interest in discussions, but the momentum seemed to increase each day. The experiment had enough success that I'd like to play grandfather to each of you young people listening today to see if we can stimulate some thoughtful discussions in your homes with your parents. Topic number one, appreciation for the land in which we live.
During one of the early conferences of the Church held on January 2nd of 1831, the Lord, through revelation, gave the Prophet Joseph Smith a vision of how he valued the land that he created for his children. In the Doctrine and Covenants we read, I have made the earth rich, and behold, it is my footstool. Wherefore, again I will stand upon it, and I hold forth and deign to give you greater riches, even a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, upon which there shall be no curse when the Lord cometh. And I will give it unto you for a land of your inheritance, if you seek it with all your hearts. And this shall be my covenant unto you. Ye shall have it for a land of your inheritance, and for the inheritance of your children forever, while the earth shall stand, and ye shall possess it again in eternity, no more to pass away. The Lord has blessed us with lands of promise to enjoy during our mortal probation. The nations of the earth, if they would continue to follow the ways of the Lord, it would be a blessing to His children here. As you special young sons and daughters, He expects you to be especially mindful of the bounteous blessings you have received from Him. With these blessings, of course, comes responsibility. We are expected to be subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, and obey, honor, and sustain the law. To obey, honor, and sustain, we must know the law and live it. We must be good citizens in our Church, schools, and communities. We must also be prepared to make our contribution by giving service to others. The best way I know of to make a contribution to the land we live in is to be prepared for the future. The Lord has promised us if we, prepare, if we are prepared, we should have no fear. If we make an effort to obtain the best education available to us, we are in a better position to be self-sufficient and not to become a burden on the society in which we live. I read in the newspaper a few weeks ago of the earning potential with increased levels of education. The difference between no high school degree and a high school graduate is an average income increase of 38 percent. From a high school diploma to some college, the increase is 20 percent. And from a high school diploma to a university degree, the increase is 56 percent. Yes, education does pay. It is never too early to determine the direction you want to prepare yourself for the future. Don't wait until you are about ready to register for college to decide what you want to study. It is such a waste of time and money to attempt to pursue an education without having a definite goal. Topic number two, self-esteem. In the Psalms of David, he gave us a vision of who we are and the eternal opportunities which are ours. He said, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth! Who has set thy glory above the heavens? When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that thou visiteth him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and to put all things under his feet. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth! Have you ever thought of yourself as a junior angel, crowned with glory and honor. Every one of our Father in Heaven's children is great in His sight. If the Lord sees greatness in you, how then should you see yourself? We have all been blessed with many talents and abilities. 
Some have been blessed with the talent to sing, some to paint, some to speak, some to dance, some to create beautiful things with their hands, others to render compassionate service. Some may possess many, others only a few. It matters not the size or the quantity, but the effort we put forth to develop the talents and abilities we have received. You are not competing with anyone else. You are only competing with yourself to do the the best with whatever you have received. Each talent that is developed will be greatly needed and will give you a tremendous fulfillment and satisfaction during your life. The almost universal gift everyone can develop is to create a pleasant disposition, an even temperament. It will open more doors for you and give you more opportunities than any other characteristic I can think of. Also remember the promise of the Lord about caring for our physical bodies. If we keep them clean, nourish them properly, and get adequate rest, we will find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. We shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Above all, we must live with hope. In the Book of Ether and the, and the Book of Mormon, the Lord reminds us, And I also remember that thou hast said, that thou hast prepared a house for man, yea, even among the mansions of thy father, in which man might have a more excellent hope. Wherefore man must hope, or he cannot receive an inheritance in the place which thou hast prepared. Live with hope that you can achieve and accomplish and develop the great gifts our Father in Heaven has given to you. Receive an inheritance among the mansions of the Father. Topic number three, love of family. The words that the Prophet Joseph Smith remembered from that tremendous visit of the angel Moroni to him on the evening of September 21, 1823, included a special promise made to families. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plan in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall be turned to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would utterly be wasted at his coming. This great vision to the Prophet Joseph Smith reestablished the doctrine of eternal family units. The eternal family is central to the gospel of our Savior. There would be no reason for him to return to earth to rule and reign over his kingdom unless the eternal family unit has been established for our Father in Heaven's children. When we understand the eternal role of the family, the nourishing and developing of strong family ties takes on even greater significance. I have watched with great interest the addition of a new granddaughter in our family. There was an immediate bonding with her brother and sister. Her siblings held her with such tender and loving care. Learning to appreciate what it means to belong to an eternal family is of great importance to us. Remember, you are part of that eternal unit that requires your best effort. Be certain you bring warmth, kindness, understanding, consideration, and a strong love to your eternal family. The final topic I included in the binder was under the heading of Love of God. From the revelations received by the Prophet Joseph Smith in 1831, we received, Wherefore I give unto them a commandment, saying thus, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, mind, and strength. And in the name of Jesus Christ, thou shalt serve him. The Lord has used the heart as the way of describing the innermost nature of his children. The scriptures are filled with references to the heart, such as the pure in heart, an abundant heart, a cheerful heart, and so forth. 
In 1 Samuel we read, For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. It is in our hearts. It is in our hearts we feel a sense of gratitude and devotion to the Father. We are of one heart with Him, to whom we owe everything. The test of our devotion to the Lord seems to be the way we serve Him. We have implanted in our souls a desire to be free. The Lord understood this when He granted us our mortal probation. With that freedom, however, comes accountability. We are instructed not to idle away our time, nor bury our talents and not use them. We are expected to make our lives better through our own initiatives and efforts. We must find our own relationship with our Eternal Father. We must gain our own testimony. We must decide whether to conform our lives to the Lord's standards. We must choose as Joshua did when he said, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I read an article the other day which stated that if an employer did not hire young, bright 16-year-olds today with their advanced understanding and feel for technology, they would be out of date in the next decade. What a marvelous age you live in! With all of your increased opportunities, however, comes the challenge of staying close to the Lord and being obedient to His law. This is the way you remain strong and are able to withstand the multitude of worldly pressures. My final entry in the binder I presented to my grandchildren was my personal testimony as to the truthfulness of the gospel of our Lord and Savior. I leave my testimony with each of you great young people that I know that God lives and He directs His work among His children here on earth. I know that He sent His Son to the world to be an atoning sacrifice for all mankind. And those who embrace His gospel and follow Him shall enjoy eternal life, the greatest gift God has given to His children. I know that He directed the restoration of the gospel here again on the earth through the ministry of the prophet Joseph Smith. I know that the only lasting joy and happiness you will ever find during your mortal experience will come by following the Savior, obeying His law, and keeping His commandments. This is my witness to you, you great young people, in the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen.